Now, January 6th, Views from the House. We recently talked to 14 members of Congress about their firsthand stories of what they saw, heard, and experienced when a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. This week, we hear from Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican of Pennsylvania, and Dean Phillips, Democrat from Minnesota. But first, former Vice President Mike Pence, who was presiding over the joint session that day. Madam Speaker, members of Congress, pursuant to the Constitution and the laws of the United States, the Senate and House of Representatives are meeting in joint session to verify the certificates and count the votes of the electors of the several states for President and Vice President of the United States. At 1 p.m. on January 6th, the House and Senate met in joint session to count the electoral votes of the 2020 presidential election. An hour later, a mob entered the Capitol with the intention of disrupting the vote. As the protesters moved closer to the Senate and House chambers, Vice President Pence and Speaker Pelosi were evacuated to safe locations. Minutes later, security officials ushered House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer and other congressional leadership off the House floor. With tension rising in the building, the House and Senate abruptly recessed. Without objection, the House is going to go back into recess. There were a few dozen members of Congress in the House chamber at that time, including Representatives Jamie Raskin and Brian Fitzpatrick. Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin was one of the members debating on the House floor on January 6th. But the week already had a tough start. The day prior, he and his wife buried their son, who had died less than a week earlier. Here's his story. On January 5th, we had a, um, a family um, graveside service um, when we buried my son, Tommy who we lost on December the 31st. And so our whole family was there, at least up to 25 people. I think 25 was the the state limit in Maryland um, for the number of people who could gather under COVID-19. So it was obviously a, um, a terribly painful and emotional day for all of us. Um, the next day um, was the day of the counting of electoral college votes. And um, our youngest daughter, Tabitha, said to me, Daddy, don't go. And I said, I've got to. It's a constitutional responsibility for us to be there to count the electors. And Speaker Pelosi had asked me to be one of the leaders on the floor answering the objections that we anticipated coming from some Republicans to the counting of electors from some of the states. And so, so I was prepared for that and they were counting me. But I said to Tabitha, why don't you just come with me? Um, and in fact, I opened it up to anybody who wanted to come with me. And so Tabitha decided to come on the 6th, and so did um, my son-in-law, Hank, who's married to our older daughter, who had eloped with Hannah during the summer in one of those COVID-19 elopement weddings uh, in Nevada. So anyway, um, the two of them decided to come um, that day. And um, Steny Hoyer, who you know is um, the, the House Majority Leader, Um, had kindly, generously offered to let me use his office just off of the floor because I was, you know, being one of the the floor leaders and also I was going to have family with me and and also um, um, I was being um, overwhelmed by the kindness and love of my colleagues, Um, but then that was creating COVID-19 problems because everybody wanted to hug and, and so on. So anyway, he gave me that office so I could have a little space and distance. So, so we, I drove down with my chief of staff, Julie Tagan. Uh, we were in my then new office in the Rayburn building, um, but we went over to the Capitol office right before one o'clock. Um, I think it was 1230 when we got there. 
And then Tabitha and Hank were dropped off by Tabitha's boyfriend, Ryan, and um, they made it upstairs. And um, so I was getting ready. I showed them the speech that I'd written. I had been um, leaning very heavily on Abraham Lincoln's uh, Lyceum Address, uh, where he's, he denounced mob violence, interestingly, um, and racial violence. And he also said that if disunion and dissolution were ever to come to America, it would not be from abroad, it would be from within. And the threats to our unity and stability came from within the country, not from the outside. So anyway, um, I showed them some stuff and Tabitha actually made some good suggestions for my speech, but then we went out at one o'clock and they were seated up in the gallery and I was down on the floor. And before everything began, um, the speaker um, said some very nice things about Tommy. Um, and um, if I recall correctly, so did um, Liz Cheney, who's you know the chair of the Republican caucus. And, and they, they very warmly um, received me back, you know, from, from this terrible thing. You know. Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland. So, but then it was, you know, then we were off to the races in terms of um, the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act. Um, our job, as I tried to emphasize in my speech, was simply to count the votes, not to decide who was going to be president. The election was over. The people had spoken. Joe Biden had won by more than 7 million votes. Um, well, th there were objections raised to Arizona. And so it, it this point, the House was meeting separately from the Senate. It was right after that point um, uh, that we heard that sound that I'll never forget, which sounded like a battering ram of people trying to barrel their way into the House chamber. We started getting texts and emails from people asking if we were okay. Um, and, and at this point, um, Congressman, you're standing where in the chamber? I was pretty much right in the center of uh, the chamber on the Democratic side. I was kind of right across from Liz Cheney. And I, and I remember that clearly because um, someone texted me um, an article about how there had been a breach um, and also the picture of the guy with the Confederate battle flag. Um, and I walked across the aisle and I showed it to Liz Cheney about how there'd been a breach of the building and just this look of horror and solemnity just came over her. Um, and then everybody's reading their phones and getting messages and it's a scene of chaos and pandemonium and we're hearing people trying to barrel in um and um some of the people who were in the back of the chamber pushed some furniture some stuff up against the war uh, against the door and then then um a lot of us started to move to the door to try to protect it and hold it but officers came in with their guns drawn and cleared a path and told everybody to get back. And they stood with their guns at the door. In the meantime, um, we were told to get gas masks out. We didn't, most of us didn't know we had gas masks, but there were gas masks under the seat. And so people began to fumble with the gas masks. And um, I remember the new chaplain, whom I had not met yet, uh, got up to give. Um, an impromptu prayer for everyone's safety. 
people started calling their husbands, their wives, their spouses, their kids to say goodbye. And I was on the phone trying to get through to Tabitha and Hank and to um, Julie taken my chief of staff who I got through to. And I said, please, you know, guard them with your life. And she did. And they, they were in that room. They locked the door. Of course, they barricaded a furniture up against the door and Julie found uh, a fire poker in the fireplace and then basically wielded it like a weapon at the door in the event that anybody uh, were to get in. And they, they were banging on the door and you could hear the chanting outside, you know, the chants of we want Trump, we want Trump or, um, you know, hang Mike Pence or traitor, 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 those kinds of things were being yelled. Um, so in, back inside the chamber, um, you know, the people up in the gallery were, were very concerned and upset. I think one of my colleagues was either passing out or having a panic attack and someone showed me, so we were very concerned about her. Um, and um, then eventually somebody just said, we're, we're gonna take everybody out. We're gonna get everybody out. And everybody began to move um, towards the rostrum and then beyond. Um, and, um, you know, th there had been a shot, you could hear a shot, but nobody quite knew what it was. Um, and um, we were shepherded through the, the stairs in the hallways out. And of course, I was just trying to figure out, you know, were we going to go and get Tabitha and Hank and Julie or not? And we did not. And um, so I basically spent the next hour just on the phone, just begging and beseeching you know, the speaker's staff, which was excellent, and the Capitol Police, which was excellent, to get them out, and they ended up getting them out and, you know, bringing them down to us. So that was a very happy, tearful reunion. Um, then, of course, there was a new problem, which was there, it was this huge throng of people who were all packed into one of the committee rooms. I don't know if it's public, which one it was or not, um, but... Um, Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland. Can you can but, you share can you share with us, Congressman, um, when you were reunited? Do you remember what you said to your daughter and Hank? And do you remember do you remember what they said back to you? I mean, I I was just so relieved. Everybody was crying, and you know, I was just kissing them and hugging them, and I told them how sorry I was. I just said I would, you know, what what else what else could I say? And so then, you know, we, we found a little area we could kind of camp out um, together. We were watching the news. I was on the news. I came on with you, Greta. Congressman Raskin is joining us now. Um, Congressman Raskin, um, how were you doing? Where were you when the Capitol was breached? <clears throat> um, well, I to see, um, they're still being careful about what we say, but I am in a safe location. Uh, still on the Hill. And, um, you know, so uh, I, I think that um, all the members are safe right now, as far as I know. Where were you when they breached the, the Capitol and got inside these protesters? I, 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 don't, I don't know when they actually breached the Capitol, but I do know there were, were repeated efforts to uh, barrel into uh, the Capitol chamber. What have you learned about, and obviously you can't share everything with us, but what have you learned about uh, what comes next? Um, well, I, don't, I don't know, but I'll tell you this, that every single member that I've spoken to is absolutely determined to have us complete the counting of electoral college votes, as is um, demanded of us by the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, and uh, everyone is absolutely determined uh, that we will continue with the normal proceedings of the U.S. Congress and that any violent insurrection against the government of the United States will be put down. 
um, and uh, American constitutional democracy will prevail. We have no choice. We are not going to allow um, this insurrectionary violence, this mob scene, prevent us from doing our constitutional duty. I mean, they've clearly interfered with the work of Congress. They interrupted the electoral count. So there, there was already damage done, but it could have been irreparable had we not gone forward with it. And so that was very much everybody's common determination and rhetoric at that point. And Speaker Pelosi came back in with Kevin McCarthy and both of them said that, that we were gonna go back as soon as the building was secure. The problem was that hundreds of people had entered the building outside of the metal detectors. Um, lots of them were armed. Um, there was no security background check on any of these people. And the Capitol Police were vastly outnumbered. They did an amazing job given, you know, these odds. But, you know, somebody, as uh, Lindsey Graham said, they could have had a bomb. We all could have died. And for all we knew, somebody had planted a bomb. I mean, there were bombs that had been left at the DNC and the RNC. So... Um, that night, before we went back in, um, you know, we were able to arrange for Tabitha and Hank to get a ride back home. And they were eager to remember there was no food or drink or anything like that there. So there was no way anybody could eat. I think that they were starving um, and uh, upset and exhausted by the experience. So we sent them home and it was on the way out when I hugged Tabitha and I said, I was so sorry. And I promised it wouldn't be like this the next time she came back to the Capitol and she said, she said, dad, I don't, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. And um, for some reason, you know, of all the awful things and dreadful things I saw and heard that day, that one really rocked me. It was like when I saw, um, when I saw the pictures of police officers being beaten up and stabbed with American flag poles, um, that just ripped my heart out, you know. So, um, so they left and um, we were there until 3.30, I think 3.45 in the morning. It took us a long time. There were still uh, GOP colleagues who were objecting to the receipt of the, uh, the votes from some of the states. I think a, a lot of them uh, recognized that this would this was a this was only adding insult to injury at this point when everybody knew that Biden had won the election um, to keep maintaining the viability of this big lie that Trump had been telling um, and um, it was making a lot of the Democrats very angry um, that people were continuing this. Congressman, when you when you had to return to the chamber, what did you think? I mean, I know you you were resolute and everybody was to keep going, but yeah, were you scared? Well, I thought back to nine eleven, and I remember on nine eleven, um, everybody was so shocked and horrified and terrified by the violence, but there was also the uncertainty of not knowing if and when another shoe would drop because you don't know at the time what the complete structure of the event is, right? And so there was a lot of fear that there could have been, you know, insurrectionist hooligans who had hidden in the building who may have had, you know, other kinds of bombs or other devices left there. Um, and so there was a certain concern at that point um, and um, there was also this strange political sensibility because, you know, everybody knows that, that representative politics is a partisan exercise. I mean, political parties organize the electorate and that's how it works. And, um, and everybody knows it's gotten bad and it's gotten nasty. Um, but 
you always have it in the back of your mind, the sense that, well, if push comes to shove, if we're really attacked in some way, we're all together as Americans, right? And now suddenly that bottom line foundational assumption that you have was shaken. Um, and there were, and there have been colleagues talking about bringing guns to the floor. And um, a lot of the Democrats were saying, if they had been armed that night, who would they have used the guns against? The marauders and the insurrectionists or against us? Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland. So that created a new sense of uncertainty and disorientation um, to think that, you know, what we all rail against as partisanship could actually uh, get to that level of wondering whether people had a kind of insurrectionist or civil war mentality about things, you know, and I'm not attributing that to anyone, but there was a lot of confusion there about what was happening. Um, and I don't think we have complete clarity on it. You know, I mean, we have uh, colleagues who've, um, you know, partaken of QAnon type ideology and thinking. We have colleagues who promoted conspiracy theories. Um, and we clearly have colleagues who were um, out speaking to what quickly became the mob. Um, so, you know, the president's lawyers at the impeachment trial originally refused to word that refused to use the word insurrection. They were called, they, they called it in one letter to us, the, um, the action of January 6th. By the end of the trial, I think um, the lawyers recognized their mistake and they did talk about insurrectionary violence and they were denouncing it and they were condemning it. And I gladly embraced that, but I said, I would like to hear the same thing from President Trump himself. You know, it would be good to know that this was not just um, a courtroom maneuver, but this was really Trump's position that he denounced the violence that he had clearly incited. Um, but we've never, we've never heard that. We've not heard a denunciation of the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or the Oath Keepers. Um, we've not, you know, what, what we got from President Trump was uh, that his conduct was perfectly appropriate, which means he would do it again. He would do exactly what he did again, if given the opportunity. Across the chamber from Congressman Raskin was Pennsylvania Republican Brian Fitzpatrick, a former FBI agent. He tells us about how his law enforcement experience came into play that day. It's a big day. I mean, it was the, the electoral count. Um, obviously, there was a lot of controversy over it this year. Unlike what, you know, when I first got elected in 2016, um, not many people were in the chamber that day uh, in, in 2017. Uh, for the electoral count, um, because it was pretty much uh, procedural. But uh, there was a lot of focus on it this year. Um, so I wanted to be there. Um, obviously, it's my duty to be there as well. And my, uh, my office is in the Cannon office building. So I made the trek over through the Cannon tunnel. Uh, and I sat in the chamber and, um, you know, was there for probably, I want to say 20 minutes or so. Uh, and that's when, uh, that's when the events started to unfold. What events started to unfold? <clears throat> well, um, the first thing that happened was um, um, members from the Capitol Police, the plainclothes people, uh, the sergeant at arms and um, sort of the supervisory apparatus um, came to the mic. And of course, they were trying to main, maintain their, their composure and remain calm, cool and collected, saying um, that everything's fine, but the building had been breached. Um, me being a career FBI agent, uh, that obviously didn't um, square with me because if the building is breached, we all knew how many people were out there, right? The building was breached. Uh, that doesn't mean everything's fine. Uh, that's a problem. Um, obviously, their job was to try to maintain um, composure. They didn't want people to panic because that's never a good thing. 
but clearly my FBI instincts kicked in uh, and I knew what was going to be coming next because uh, the Capitol Police Force, um, you know, they do a great job, but they, they, you, you can't prepare for a mob like that uh, after the fact. That's got to be an advanced um, a prep and a significant um, countermeasure uh, operation. Uh, which clearly was not the case that day. Uh, we all know that because we all walked into the Capitol. Uh, there was no expanded uh, or significantly expanded police presence or barricades that would really withstand the type of numbers that, um, that we knew were there that day, uh, just by watching TV and seeing the crowds. When your FBI instincts clicked <clears throat> in, what did you do? Well, obviously, you know, we were talking to people in the chamber, making sure everybody was okay. But um, in that situation, the Capitol Police are, are, are the command on scene commanders. Um, so you follow their protocol. You don't take matters into your own hands. Uh, you, you have faith that they're um, doing, they're, they're allowing their training to kick in and do what they need to do. And you, you stand by and you wait for their instructions, just like they said. Um, you know, I was obviously checking on my colleagues to make sure everybody was Okay. Um, the people we were more concerned about were the people that were up in the gallery. Uh, they didn't have an easy uh, escape route. Um, they were stuck up there. Um, of course, um, because of COVID, we had, to, we had to separate out and be distanced. And um, so there were a large number of people up there. So they were my, my first area of concern. Uh, but obviously, everybody in the chamber, I was concerned about my staff um, in the Cannon Office Building, because if the complex is penetrated, the, the complex is all connected underground through tunnels and hallways. So, um, you know, if these people knew, did any kind of advanced reconnaissance and knew where they were going, then it wasn't just us at risk. It was our staff as well. So you're concerned at this point about your colleagues around you. <clears throat> what did you do? Who well, did I talked, you talk to? I talked to the Capitol Police. I, I let them know, you know, I'm a former agent. I'm the only one in Congress. Um, and you let me know what you need. I, I know the drill. I'm not going to get in your way, um, but I'm here if you need me. Um, and what does uh, that mean, Congressman? You know the drill. What 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 could they have asked you to do? Well, it's similar to when I was an active duty FBI agent and there was an off-duty police officer and something broke. You know, they come over and they let you know. Uh, if you're on an airplane, uh, you let the flight attendant know who you are. And if anything happens, you're there to help them. So it's just, it's deconfliction, really. Um, it's to let them know that uh, should they need you, you're there. Um, but you're not going to get in their way because they have their training, they have their objective, they have their mission, they're on the radios with each other, they have their earpieces, um, they have the protocol. Um, but if they need me, I'm there for them. What did the police officers say to you when you told them that? <clears throat> Very much appreciated, uh, but they were, I mean, clearly they were stressed out at that moment. Um, you know, he didn't have time for, for you know, long conversation. Uh, message was received, he appreciated it, told him where I'd be. Um, and then he went, went about his way. What were the conversations like with your colleagues at that moment? <clears throat> uh, making sure everybody remained calm. And, um, you know, I told them, you know, we have different exit routes out of here. Again, my concern was for my colleagues in, uh, in the gallery, uh, because there's only one way in and out of there. Um, that was the problem. We had multiple ways out of the, out of the chamber. Um, so we we're just keeping our eye on them, you know, and that was one thing that I did mention to the Capitol police officer. Uh, if you're going to secure a choke point first, make sure it's on the, not the second floor where we are, it's on the third floor, uh, because there's no ladder down from the gallery to the floor. Um, so that, and they knew that and they, they rogered that and, um, you know, took care of that. They tried to anyway. Um, were you talking to your colleagues up in the gallery? Were you giving them any sort of instructions? I was not. Uh, for me to do that, I'd have to be shouting up there, and, and that can sometimes raise tensions, so I didn't want to do that. Um, you know, I left that to the Capitol Police to make sure that the third floor was their, their primary uh, mission, primary area of concern, you know, because if you have, if you're overwhelmed numerically um, as a law enforcement officer, you have to make strategic decisions. Um, you have to pick and choose your battles, um, and, you know, that's what I shared with them, and uh, they agreed. Pennsylvania Republican Brian Fitzpatrick. As you're watching your colleagues <clears throat> up in the gallery, you're watching them on the floor. What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking uh, a lot of things, obviously. Um, you know, we, we were instructed, I mean, as the, the time went by, um, you know, when they originally said they have it under control, um, I obviously knew otherwise because you can't have a breach. If somebody breaches the Capitol, 
they're not just kind of casually strolling in. There's force involved. And if they were using force to breach the Capitol, they had a lot of people behind them. So there's nothing fine about that. Um, so I knew that there was going to be a step B to this. Uh, eventually, it was going to have to lead to evacu- evacuation. Um, you don't want to, you know, um, jump ahead of law enforcement and lead that charge yourself. So again, you defer to them because they're on the comms, you know, with their pieces, um, communicating with each other. So, you know, I just told my colleagues, I said, you know, just be prepared. Number one, you got to maintain your composure because the only, the, the worst thing you can do is lose your composure in that situation. Uh, if everyone remains calm, we will find a way to get people out of here safely. Um, and then the next message was uh, to deploy the gas mask. And that's when the stress level definitely went up. Um, and what was so surreal about it is, you know, as members of Congress, we take uh, groups of constituents on the House floor all the time. One of the first questions is this little compartment under the seat, what is this? And you'd pull it out and you'd show them um, that this is a gas mask in the event that the Capitol is ever under attack. Never in a million years ever thinking that the day would come and we would actually use it. So that was what was really surreal about that moment, that of all the times that I brought constituents on the floor showing them this device that I thought was completely outside the realm of possibility that we would use it, I was in unzipping that bag, not to show constituents what was in it, but to actually put it on myself and my colleagues. And it was a very, very surreal moment. And stress levels went up. Of course. I mean, we're all human beings, even myself. Um, you know, that's, um, you know that's, that, that's a serious situation for sure. What happened next? <clears throat> so eventually, um, you know, they, they funneled us out. So if you're looking at the, um, the speaker's chair from the chamber, um, to the left was the entry where they were, uh, the crowds were coming in. That's where um, Ashley Babbitt was coming in through and penetrating that, that doorway there. They funneled us out to the right side. There's a stairwell that immediately when you come out, you go down and it takes you to the ground floor. And we, we sort of navigated uh, through the back tunnels uh, with the assistance. Um, and that's where, that's where I was asked to help um, because there was a lot of people coming out. It wasn't just uh, members of Congress, by the way, it was members of the press. Um, you had a lot of, and everybody was wearing their gas masks. So think of that scene, right? Um, so that's when I helped starting directing traffic. Um, you know, I asked the Capitol police officer, where's the first location? The first location they wanted us was uh, the cafeteria. Um, and then next, you know, when, you know, there are windows all around the area, say to the police officer, this may not be the best place for us to be. We ultimately then migrated to the Ways and Means Committee hearing room, which, you know, we were not allowed to say to anybody where we were at the time, as you're aware. Um, in fact, we had, a, you know, admonished some, some uh, people in the room, including the media, you are not to report our location. This is a very serious situation. Uh, we, um, we were there because there were no windows. Um, we were able to secure that one area. But there were an awful lot of people in there. Um, I'd say half to three-fourths of, of the house uh, were in that room. What was your thought seeing that? It's dangerous. You know, I mean, it's to have that many people in one place is always a very dangerous thing. But it was, it was, it was one area where our law enforcement personnel could protect. Um, it's never an ideal situation, but it's the best of a lot of bad options. How did you know it was secure? Well, you don't. Um, you're in the room. Um, you have law enforcement there. You never know if it's secure. Um, if, you know, 1,500 people decided to storm that room, then there would have been a problem. Um, and that's why it was so important that there was discipline, you know, people staying off of Twitter, reporters not tweeting stuff out, um, because that was a serious, serious um, public safety uh, situation there. And everybody had to be on lockdown. And we told the reporters, you'll have plenty of time to tell your stories after this is over. But you got a lot of people in this room, um, you know, family members, parents of children, you know, don't do that now. Um, so most of them, I believe, abided by that. Um, but that's important because um, if these people were looking for members of Congress uh, and they get wind of where three fourths of them are, that's not a good thing. At what point, Congressman, did you communicate with your family and what <clears throat> did you tell them? I told him I was fine. You know, the, the, the really unfortunate thing about this, um, you know, my predecessor in Congress was my brother, Mike. Um, we lost him to cancer. He died on January 6th, and this was the one-year anniversary of his death. Um, so it was doubly a hard day for me. So I was communicating with my parents that day. They were my whole family. I couldn't be there, obviously, because we were dealing with some pretty important consequential constitutional duties that day. 
but the rest of my family was with my parents in the house we grew up in. I couldn't be there. I was the only one that couldn't be there. And we were kind of sharing texts back and forth. And then all of a sudden the news broke and um, they were watching TV and actually knew, knew more than we did being in the chamber um, because they were seeing this uh, unfold real time. Um, and obviously it was, you know, very, very upsetting to them. Um, but when I did finally get to the uh, Ways and Means Committee room, you know, I said, I can't tell you where I'm at, but I'm okay. Minnesota Democrat Dean Phillips was seated across from Congressman Fitzpatrick in the House Chamber's gallery on January 6th. He was responsible for a moment that reverberated throughout the room. Here's how he started his day. We were warned in advance that it's probably wise to be driven to uh, the Capitol complex or to drive ourselves. Uh, But I wanted to walk and wanted to uh, assess the circumstances around the complex. And uh, what I saw was a couple hundred people milling about, uh, some carrying Trump flags, uh, clearly there to uh, protest. Uh, but nothing, nothing disconcerting. Uh, we have protests on the Capitol complex regularly. And I went to my office and watched the then president's speech. Uh, that really concerned me, especially when he invited those thousands that were in attendance to join him uh, in marching to the Capitol complex, uh, clearly to try to disrupt or at least protest uh, the proceedings uh, to affirm the election. And when the bells rang, uh, I think it was noon uh, or one o'clock, I made my way over to the chamber. I wanted to witness what would be a historic proceeding. Uh, I went up to the gallery uh, with about 20 of my Democratic colleagues uh, and watched. Uh, Soon after the proceedings began, uh, I got some text messages from my family uh, indicating there were disturbances outside. So I turned to my colleague, Tom Malinowski, Representative Malinowski from New Jersey, Uh, and said, why don't we go outside and take a look? So we left the chamber, uh, looked out the windows uh, on both sides of the Capitol, and saw more and more people coming, uh, held back only by three-foot-tall bicycle rack perimeters, uh, barriers, and just a handful of Capitol police uh, trying to defend them. We saw a couple skirmishes, but nothing terribly concerning. Uh, But a Capitol police officer who we knew uh, rushed over to us and said, you know, please get away from the windows, which made us a little concerned, of course, And we asked her, you know, are are we safe here today? And she said, look, guys, you're in the United States Capitol. It's probably the safest building in America, if not the world. And um, with that, we turned around, went back to the chamber. And about 10 minutes later, uh, the speaker and the majority leader uh, were very abruptly uh, whisked out of the chamber by Secret Service. And what surprised us, uh, because we all witnessed it, was that the proceedings continued for a few minutes. Uh, in their absence. Uh, But it wasn't long before uh, a police officer uh, took over the microphone and advised everybody to uh, prepare their gas masks uh, that uh, infiltrators had uh, entered the Capitol. Uh, They were in the rotunda making their way to the House chamber and to take cover. Now, Congressman, before you go any further, when you saw the speaker being and the majority leader uh, being taken away, what did you think of that? How, do, how were you feeling? Did you say anything to those around you? Well, we were, we were, we knew what was happening uh, because it was clear there was something of urgency. What surprised us is we weren't advised and the proceeding continued. So we assumed there must have been a specific threat on them uh, or something else urgent that was occurring uh, that required their um, uh, participation. We knew nothing at that time that, that about the building actually having been violated already. Uh, but it was only a few minutes until, again, the Capitol Police told us there were people inside. They were coming our way. Uh, we heard at that very moment, at that very moment when the Capitol Police officer uh, announced that we should take cover, I stood up uh, at the back of the, the gallery on the second level, the mezzanine. Uh, Representative Gosar from Arizona was objecting to the Arizona slate of electors. And at that moment, I simply shouted out at the top of my lungs, this is because of you. I screamed it. Okay. And I think I was representing four years of uh, angst and anxiety and anger. Uh, Many of us saw this coming from a mile away. Many in the country did. I think I represented probably millions of Americans uh, who felt the same way. Uh, And at that very moment, uh, the entire country, including myself, recognized the fragility uh, of our democracy. 
Uh, I have great appreciation for the traditions in the Congress and decorum. I do not like to violate it, uh, but um, I do not regret it uh, because it was what I was feeling and it was four years of pent up anxiety about what was transpiring right in front of our eyes. Uh, many, many cautioned me to, you know, to, you know be quiet, you know, don't, don't do that. Uh, there was a palpable sense of concern and um, dismay uh, and disbelief uh, about what was about to occur. Uh, but that uh, any concern about me shouting that out uh, was quickly replaced by disbelief about what was transpiring. And I think I can speak for all of us in the chamber at that moment that we really couldn't believe uh, that the House chamber was literally under threat by insurgents who were making their way to the chamber. Uh, and and I, I thought about not just us in the chamber, I thought about everybody watching on TV screens. Uh, I thought about my family, as all of us did in that chamber did, how to communicate with them, not make them more fearful. And, um, you know, there were moments that um, I hope never to relieve, relive again. Representative Dean Phillips, Democrat from Minnesota. Uh, but at that moment, uh, we prepared our gas masks, and I had a, I had a little bit of a, um, an epiphany, if you will, that uh, the people in the Capitol were most certainly coming for Democrats if they intended harm. Uh, they were clearly there to disrupt uh, and prevent us from certifying the election. So I, I yelled at my colleagues uh, to, you know, follow me, come, come with me to the other side of the chamber, to the Republican side. Uh, I thought that if uh, if we could somehow blend in with our Republican colleagues uh, on the other side of the chamber, that it might actually protect us, uh, maybe even save lives. I mean, there was a, a moment where I really thought that being taken hostage may have been, at that moment, the best case scenario, uh, not knowing anything more about who was in the chamber. And as I spoke on the House floor not long ago uh, about my feelings, as I look in retrospect, I realized that not all of my colleagues could blend in uh, and if there's a silver lining to that horrific day for me personally, and maybe even others who I might have affected, uh, it's uh, what my privilege meant in that chamber in that day. And it changed me forever. And it changed me forever. But we did. A number of us tried to make our way across the mezzanine, the, the gallery, which is not easy to do because there are railings that kind of subdivide little sections. So we had to either go over them or under them. Uh, but we made our way, uh, thanks to the wonderful help uh, of three Capitol Police officers who were assisting us with our masks uh, and trying to escort us to the other side. And when we, we heard the doors slam, we, we saw the furniture start, you know, people started moving in, a, uh, in front of the doors to prevent access. Uh, we heard commotion outside. We heard glass breaking. Uh, perhaps the sound, though, that I'll never forget uh, was the sound of maybe a hundred of those gas masks. Um, with the mechanical fan inside whizzing. Uh, it sounds like a siren, especially when they're collectively uh, all on together. Uh, and uh, that's a noise I'll never forget. I know one of our colleagues started uh, to pray. Uh, the first group of us that made our way to the other side, um, within a matter of minutes or so, were escorted out of the chamber to the one safe passageway to a elevator, which we took down to the uh, tunnels and and ran our way over to the Rayburn building. Uh, uh, another group, about half of us, uh, didn't make it out right away. They came some minutes later. Um, and as we got in the elevator, uh, we heard a gunshot, uh, which made it uh, all too uh, real for so many of us. But we made our way to the tunnels. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, it was not well coordinated. Uh, nobody knew exactly what to do, where to go. We were directed to the Rayburn cafeteria. Uh, we arrived there, about a dozen of us, Democrats and Republicans, only to find an em empty cafeteria with no protection, plate glass windows, uh, but we were able to watch the televisions. And I won't forget uh, seeing uh, on the televisions what was occurring outside of the chamber, now inside the Capitol. Uh, it was a surreal experience. Within take a matter of minutes. Sorry, take, take us back to when you cross over to the Republican side of the gallery, are there Republican colleagues there and how are you received? So we were in the, we were in the gallery level. Uh, there were no uh, other members. The only people in the gallery that I recall uh, were Democrats on the Democratic side of the chamber. Uh, so, but the only egress from the chamber from the mezzanine that was safe at that time 
uh, was on the Republican side. So that's why the Capitol Police officers also were telling us to you know, make our way over there. Um, and that's exactly what we did. Some members stayed on the floor. Uh, there were a couple of Republicans, I remember, who were uh, right at the main entrance uh, you know, uh, to, the, to the House chamber uh, trying to protect it. Uh, uh, but everything happened. And, and by the way, it wasn't just members of Congress. It was staff. It, was, it were journalists up in the gallery. Uh, and we were all, you know, nobody was thinking at that moment uh, what your job was, uh, who you were, uh, what side of the aisle you stood on. Uh, you know, we were in it together uh, and we got out of it together. Do you remember what you said or what you or what you heard from your colleagues during this time that you're trying to get to safety? It was a combination of disbelief, a combination of great fear. Um, I will confess that there were some amongst us uh, running through the tunnels who, uh, in my estimation, uh, bear some responsibility for uh, what transpired. Uh, there were conversations about that. But for the most part, it was people trying to help one another uh, get to safety uh, and uh, without a lot of direction, uh, without a lot of knowledge of what might be transpiring. And at that very moment, none of us aware uh, of where the insurgents, uh, insurrectionists may be, uh, what weapons they might have, or frankly, what their intentions were. Uh, so uh, one can only imagine. Uh, and I have great empathy for anybody who's experienced trauma before, because uh, this, for me, in my life, was certainly uh, the most the most fearful. Throughout this, Congressman, are you hearing from your family? And if so, what are they saying? And what are you saying back to them? Yeah, I thought about how to communicate, especially with my, my daughters, my wife, my mother, uh, all of whom were uh, texting. And I was trying to calm them. But the reality was, is I was a lot more concerned for um, my safety and all of our safety than I was uh, letting them on to. I know some of my colleagues sent some much more emotional um, messages to their family uh, for reasons I surely understand. But I was trying to calm them because I realize now watching what transpired on television may have been even more frightening, uh, whether or not you had family members in the chamber, you know, to see our capital uh, violated like that, uh, in that manner, uh, so poorly defended, uh, was something that I'm sure people watching on TV uh, will never forget either. Representative Dean Phillips, Democrat from Minnesota. Congressman, you you said it was the most frightening experience, it sounds like, that you've had. So how often do you think about it? Does it stay with you? Much more so than I imagined. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I was resolute, by the way, after, after uh, we left the uh, Rayburn cafeteria, we were escorted to the Longworth building. Uh, all of us congregated in the Ways and Means hearing room, which is one of the largest rooms. I think it was designed to also provide uh, safety if necessary. Uh, that was surreal too, because it was Democrats and Republicans all together, including many of those who again, in my estimation, uh, bear some responsibility for what occurred. Uh, many of them not wearing masks in a very packed room uh, in the middle of the COVID pandemic. I remember my colleague, Colin Allred, uh, once we reached safety, uh, took a brass stanchion apart uh, and, and took the, uh, the tubular portion uh, and was holding onto it as a weapon because none of us knew if we still might be under threat. And now we were all together uh, in a even less defensible uh, location. And um, it was terribly, uh, you know, terribly disconcerting. Uh, now, your question, I'm sorry, was... How did you know you were safe? Or what point did you know? Well, oh, I, you know, as I reflect, you asked, yeah, you, I still don't, none of us feel safe, even to this moment since January 6th. It changes you. Anybody now I recognize, another epiphany is those who've been through trauma or uh, been threatened uh, their life or safety. Uh, I don't know if it's something you ever feel safe from ever again. It changes you. Uh, you can manage it. You can adapt to it. Uh, but I think I speak for many of my colleagues because I've spoken with many of my colleagues, including Republicans who still bear scars from that day. Uh, irritability and um, hard to sleep, uh, nightmares, um, lack of focus, you know, some PTSD symptoms that are pretty well known. And I think I speak for many when, you know, it's not the same. Uh, it may never be the same. Uh, but we, but we're resolute. And I'll tell you what I remember more about anything in that ways and means room when we were congregated there for hours, we were far more focused on getting back into the chamber, no matter how long it took, 
no matter under what circumstances, uh, to complete our job. And I hope that history, and I, I trust that history, will recognize that more than anything else, uh, that even under great threat, uh, even uh, under those circumstances, that we did come together, uh, we fulfilled our responsibility to the Constitution, to the country, and we got the job done. And that unified us uh, in, in, in quite miraculous ways, and, and I'm proud of that. Uh, but nobody will be the same again. The country won't be the same again. But I hope it's a wake-up wake up call. Uh, we need those on occasion uh, when we, the people, are entrusted with preservation of such a remarkable uh, democratic republic. Uh, it takes everybody, and we can't legislate our way out of these circumstances. Shortly after 3.30 in the morning on January 7th, lawmakers certified the results of the 2020 presidential election. The whole number of electors appointed to vote for president of the United States is 538. Within that whole number, a majority is 270. The votes for president of the United States are as follows. Joseph R. Biden, Jr. of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes. The whole number of electors appointed to vote for Vice President of the United States is 538. Within that whole number, a majority is 270. The votes for Vice President of the United States are as follows. Kamala D. Harris of the state of California has received 306 votes. Michael R. Pence of the state of Indiana has received 232 votes. The purpose of the joint session having concluded, pursuant to Senate Concurrent Resolution 1, 117th Congress, the chair declares the joint session dissolved. Our coverage of the January 6th joint session and the congressional hearings examining what happened at the Capitol on that day can be found at our website, cspan.org. Stay with C-SPAN for continuing coverage of the investigation into the January 6th attack.